Hi, I'm Bex. And I'm Laura. And we're here to talk openly and honestly about miscarriage, stillbirth and all pregnancy loss. We aim to smash the taboo surrounding these subjects. And rebuild the topic in a way to support and educate women. Rather than isolate and shame them. Welcome to the worst girl gang ever. You tried it on with your neighbour? No, that... no, he tried it on with me. Well, oh, I see. It was one of those real, like, <laughs> I genuinely had my washing machine broke. Um, oh, okay. And so genuinely, he came over to fix a washing machine, and then he turned out to be actually quite fit, and, like, I posted on Instagram, and people were very thirsty for him, because he was a good-looking <laughs> lad. And we yeah. had a couple of drinks, and it was, like, he was very, like, he was very quite keen. And then it turns out he was 24. So How to... old were you at the time? 31. <laughs> okay I mean that's the exact age gap between me and my husband yeah the thing is it's not the age gap it's that I've been burned with that age category before have you um, quite severely so my new rule <laughs> is like can't go younger than 25 okay it's a self-imposed yeah. rule also, Surely, will that change year on year or is that going to be forever you can't well, go I younger think, than 25 well what's that isn't there there is meant to be like a one of those sort of rules where it's like you're half your age plus seven is like the limit of where you can go um so I will stick to that, but 25, also the, you know, the, the human brain, but particularly the male brain is not even fully developed till 25. So it, you know, that's reason in and of itself, I think, to stay clear. Oh. Range gap for less significant, the older you get, right? Yeah. yeah. To be honest, my, yeah, my husband's seven years younger than me. And to, to when we first started dating, it really bothered me <laughs> because I didn't, he's got a beard and I didn't realise how young he was. And then it, I was like, oh, my God, everyone's going to be looking at us like, you know. And then actually, I don't really give a shit what anyone thinks no. anymore. If I hadn't have had my, you know, little heartbreak with my 23-year-old, uh, when I was when I was 29, so it was still six years, um, but I've just been so badly burnt that um, I vowed to my friends that I'm no longer going <laughs> to... And you think that was an age thing rather than just a I'm a dick uh, thing? I think it was... No, I think it is. Some of it's an age, and I think he was, yeah, he was, a young, he was young. Like as in in the, I mean he's an August baby so like in the school year he was like the young you know really really young um yeah I think a lot of it was age related Not he wasn't guy. still at school though can I just clarify he wasn't still at school no he wasn't still at school I work in child exploitation you can't come at me with these things I will look okay well let's job. just say it was field field experience Oh my God, should you imagine? Should we cut this? No, this we're not cutting this. <laughs> you might think that you've joined a, uh, I mean, a dating podcast at best. <laughs> at worst, something quite illegal. Yes, yes. But no, it is us. It is us, the worst. Because I and them. And she. And she. Okay. And they. <laughs> anyway. Anywho. So. Yeah, we're here to talk about the older... The baby loss stuff. Plus yeah. More. Plus more. So uh, shall I do it? You do it, do it. I'm going to interrupt you though, so okay, be prepared. Cool. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Worst Girl Gang Ever. We are joined in the studio by... Now, uh, hang on, your surname is different. On right, the... so yeah, ignore that. Um, I, am, I am Laura Amberjet. That is my real okay. name. <laughs> okay. You use a pseudonym at work, do you? Or... Yeah, Let's not announce the fact I'm using a work laptop for this. But yes, okay. I use a different name, partly because of Instagram, actually. I use it, I oh, use my maiden, this is my maiden name. So I use my maiden name for work, but my real legal official name is still LAB. And no one's ever called me that. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, can call you that if you want. Laura B for us to have on this uh, this series. And I'm also Laura B. That's yeah, I mean, it's been a logistical organisational nightmare, if I'm honest, yeah. for me. Laura's <laughs> sailed through, obviously. <laughs> Laura B. Laura B, yeah. Yeah, so welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It does feel a bit like a long time coming. <laughs> I don't think I've ever called it a show before either. <laughs> Jazz fans. Yes, it has been a long time coming. We were we were talking about having you on um, last year. Well, no, maybe longer. It was. Last think, year, it was only a few weeks ago, so. Yeah, no, I think you actually first messaged me just before I moved house. So that would have been like summer 2020. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should get the house out of the way. And that sounds great. And then, you know, life took a bit of a, a bit of a off-road. Um, and then I think, again, last year, again, I wasn't quite in the place where I could do it. Um, but now, third time lucky. Third time's a third charm. Third time lucky. So Here you are. Right from the very beginning, how did you become a fully-fledged member of the worst girl gang ever? Um, yeah, God, like way back when. So my, like, my life was pretty awesome. Just going to throw it out there. I'm not, you know, I had a pretty great life. Had it made, like, graduated at 22. Uh, first, like, bought the first house at 23 with my long-term boyfriend. Married at 24 and pregnant at 25. It was literally like a Disney film. It was mm. like, you know, the dream. Which I will mention that again in a little bit, my magical Disney thinking and all the problems it's got me in. Um, yeah, so I was pregnant, 25, first baby, really excited. Um, and then at uh, like 23, 24 weeks, it all went to shit, basically. Um, so we went for our anomaly scan at 20 weeks. Everything looked absolutely fine. Baby was just in an awkward position. My best friend's a midwife. So, you know, I told her, oh, like, like mother, like child, obviously. Um, <laughs> so I had to go back again a couple of weeks later for a further, um, it was the heart. They couldn't quite get get a visual on the heart yeah. so I came back again two weeks later again couldn't really get the visual but there was nothing to indicate it was a problem it was just awkward baby um went back again later that week and that's when things started to change um we had to go down to get Ormond Street because the obstetrician had seen something that he wasn't sure about I mean he was actually sure but he couldn't say um so we went down to Great Ormond Street and I remember the day the days I etched into my memory because I don't know if you guys remember but the 26th of June 2015 was when there was that series of terrorist attacks. So there was the beach shooting in Tunisia and the suicide bombing in Kuwait. So we were in London, in Great Ormond Street, sat in this tiny little waiting room with sort of like paint. I remember it's like pastel coloured walls, sort of slightly vomiting inducing, watching on this tiny telly in the corner, watching all these like, atrocities going on in the world. And I was like, it was, it was a really hot day. It was, it was really surreal. And I remember, again, my Disney thinking, turning to my husband, holding his hand and going, our baby's fine. And he was like, great. He was white. So what do you mean? I was like, our baby's fine. He said, how can you say that? And I was like, look. I was like, look what's happening in the world. Like, look at how, I was like, there's only so much shit can happen in one day. Like, there's devastation everywhere. I was like, our baby's fine. Um, but I was wrong. So we went into the, to have the, um, the fetal echo scan and the, um, doctor I don't know what their job title was I can't remember but their doctor was like we sat in this little room and they brought us this little counseling room it was called like an interview room and it had a box of tissues on the table which is never it's never a good sign is it when there's a box of tissues and um the nurse came and sat next there's a cardiac nurse there so she came and put her hand on my knee and the doctor just said I'm really sorry but your um your baby has um hyperplastic left heart syndrome 
which meant nothing to me. But essentially what it means is on the kind of spectrum of like fetal or cardiac issues, you've got like a hole in the heart, which is kind of your your lower level. Some babies can even outgrow them, can't they? And then right at the end of the spectrum is hyperplastic left heart syndrome, which basically means the baby's got half a heart. Um, And yeah, and that was the beginning of my descent into into the club, I suppose. Oh, mate. Horrendous. So what did the next sort of few weeks look like for you? Well, in the kind of immediate, in that actual conversation, um, you know, we, she was, the doctor was talking to us about this condition. I said, well, what, well, what are we going to do? And she said, well, most people with this diet, face with this diagnosis decide to terminate the pregnancy, which like, that was a word that I just was like, sorry, sorry what? Like, and I think I laughed because <laughs> I was like, oh, you, this, I must be being punked, but this is insane. I'm sorry. My dog is like, so totes emotion by the story um so yeah she so showed about termination and I was like that that's not going to happen we're not and she tried to talk to me I was like I'm not interested in hearing about that you know obviously we're not going to terminate the pregnancy um and she kind of went on to explain that you know that basically once baby was born that um you know the prognosis was really quite was you know was not good that he was fine I didn't know he was a he but the baby was fine whilst I was pregnant because I was doing the pumping the blood around for him but once he was born that would stop. And so she said, your options are either you continue, you terminate the pregnancy now, deliver early, which, you know, she said the other options that you can continue to term and deliver at term. She said, obviously, we wouldn't be able to intervene. Um, so baby would be born. And then there's a little valve in the heart, uh, which, which allow, I don't really understand the anatomy of it. But basically, like at the moment, at that point, I was pumping oxygenated blood around his body. So basically, when he was born, that valve was shut and he would turn blue, suffocate and die. Obviously, that was also not an option I was willing to entertain. And then the third option, and I think it's significant that it was presented to me as the third option, was, well, there is a potential to do some surgery. Um, I was like, great, well, we'll do the surgery. Um, and she explained it's a series of three open heart surgeries. Um, but the way she was talking about it, like, I was like, this is my green light. This is our silver lining. And that is just not how it was pitched to us. Um, so, yeah, well, anyway, we went. Why? Because is it because yeah. it's expensive or because it's the chances of survival at the end of it are still minimal? Yeah, the chances are really minimal. So there's three open. So for high plastic left heart surgery, there's three open heart surgeries. And the chance. The Following, first one is- sorry. Follow, and that involves carrying your baby to term, giving birth and then whisk straight off straight away, is it? So the first one is in the first couple of days that they're born. They have the first heart surgery. The second one is some, I can't remember the exact details, but the second one is within the first year. And then the third one is within the kind of second or third year. Um, at each point in this, at each kind of surgery, she said to me the chances of survival, and this was obviously 2015, so it might have moved by now, but at that point, chance of survival for each surgery is a third. So a third of babies make through the first surgery, and then of those, a third make through the second, and so on and so forth. So it's really slim. Wow. Um, and they just don't really, they don't like to do it. And um, I think also the thing, she made, the thing she pointed out as well, was particularly with HLHS, what these, these surgeries, are not, they're never going to cure, they can't cure the heart. So the only way to cure it is to have a heart transplant. And at that point, again, you know, baby children don't get heart transplants. I think, you know, we obviously went away and did so much reading. I think I completed the internet on HLHS. Every single story of every family, every blog, everything. Um, the, like, we ran the British Heart Foundation. We had so much kind of support. And um, the issue is that it can never be fully fixed. So you're kind of like, you're, you're putting like a little shunt in there and there's all various things to try and basically get the heart to go to work well enough. But it was never going to fully work and at that point again the oldest survivor of HLHS or the oldest young person living with it was in their late, late teens so they were like well, we just don't know you know how long um 
and the cardiac nurse who was sat with us um you know with a hand on my knee she, she said oh, I work in fetal cardiology and in um neonatal cardiology and the way the story show we spoke to her a few times we had her number we could call her and I remember her ringing her and saying I don't tell me what I need to do tell me what to do and she said I can't tell you what to do she said but I can tell you that I'm a mother of three and I work on this ward and I work with these children these babies every day and she's like and I wouldn't put a child through mm. um and her saying that you know we had many conversations with our local hospital with the fetal team there we, you know but it was her saying that to me that was the thing that kind of ended up sort of sitting with me permission to to say okay yeah because to make that decision yourself is just probably what the worst decision that anyone ever has to make right yeah yeah I mean I think the word the low I mean there's been some lows (laughs) um in my 31 years but the lowest point of my whole life where I felt just the most broken um was having to you have to sign a bit of paper so you have to sign the uh, form to say that you consent to have the uh, procedure which then begins termination and um, I had to because my body I had to sign it um, and that was it took me a long time to put my pen to paper even when you know my husband and I we kind of reached the decision together um, I can't ever I, I can't say it was the right one I can't ever say like it felt right because how can it feel right but it felt like the only option Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to really sit with like why are we doing it are we doing it for ourselves because a lot of the evidence was like you know think about your life think about and I was like is this about us or is this about our baby and um, yeah it was when that nurse said to me I wouldn't put a child through it that I was like well it's not because I, I you know I wanted to be that I wanted to be that mum I wanted to be that you know, the kind of great almost cute mum the superhero mum who you hear about who's like there you know and my family and friends were saying you know it's going to be awful you'll be living at Great Ormond Street you won't see your husband I don't know how you're going to afford it and I was like I don't care none of that stuff matters I want to be this lioness mum and take on the world or um but that was you know I feel like we did the best we could for our baby based on the evidence that we had yeah um, but I can't say I can't say if it was right because how can I ever? I don't know how I ever get to put it. I can say it was the right thing. It was the thing. It was. It's so interesting because we spoke recently to Lucy. Um, does this mm. is this ringing a bell with you, Laura? Yeah, Laura B. Oh yeah, sorry, you're both called Laura B. <laughs> um, because she said exactly what you've just said. She made a, a similar decision and had this, a similar difficulty you know, with what you've just explained. And she said, we, um, we all said, you know, this is an expression that I love, you know, we do the best we can with the information that we have at the time. Yeah. And she, what she did was wrote, her and her husband wrote to their future selves at that point to remind them why they had done, why they come to that decision, what was behind that decision. And I thought that was actually really powerful in, in yeah. doing that. Um, is that something that you would perhaps recommend that other people do if they were in yeah. that position? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I never wrote to myself, but I, the day we got back from the hospital and we signed the documentation, um, I scribbled on the back of a postcard, a little letter to our, as then unnamed, unborn child. Um, and it was that scribbling on a postcard that then eventually became my first little blog and my little Instagram share oh, postcard wow. for Finley. Um, and that's why it was called Postcards for Finley because oh, it clicked wow. on the back of a postcard. Um, and I, so I wrote that down and I remember writing like, it's for you, I promise it's for you. Um, and then I had a journal um, and I wrote in that journal every single day, sometimes two or three times a day. Um, and I did that for... 372 days um from the day we came home from hospital without him you know until over a year later and so in that they were written some of it was written to me some of it was written 
to him. Some of it's written to, you know, it's all a series of sort of letters. Some of it, some of it was kind of just rambling. Some of it was like, you know, but it was, I've still got all those journals. And um, there's something that I was sort of intermittently sort of pick up and pick down, particularly sort of now where I'm at in my kind of healing, mental health, whatever. I have returned to those and kind of, I really needed to read that because there were times particularly in the last 18 months, I've been quite unwell when I've, I've lost, I forgot that. And I think it's easy to kind of other things take over. And I, I'm really glad that I had a written record because I can't, you know, you, when it comes to trauma, you can't, you can't trust your own memory. You can't trust your own judgment on things. So having a written document, that document from the time. And obviously, you know, in there, I do talk about the fact that there were days when I absolutely doubted that. And was it the right thing? Was it wrong? And, but having that kind of seeing that written down and seeing that kind of process and that, you know, the, the, the thought, that sort of stream of consciousness, um, it, it was a lifesaver for me, particularly sort of where I'm at now with trauma and with, everything so yeah you know if you can enjoy it something even if it's just on a postcard just jot something down oh I love that so what happened after you signed those papers so at this point I was 24 so we I was 24 weeks pregnant which is significant because had he been born three days before he was born he wouldn't have been registered as stillborn um because the viability so for us we you know it was it was sort of about 10 days from that appointment at Ormond Street to actually reaching a decision it was about 10 days um which felt like forever but also no time at all but I think once we kind of settled with what we were going to do we were like we just need to do it um I was getting more and more pregnant but as weeks went on everyone was starting to know I was pregnant and I think once I knew what was going to happen so we went and we signed the papers and they gave me it was a, it was a standard induction process was going to happen so the you know they talked about the, the procedure so um, the worst word in the English language, I think, is, is feticide. And that is the name of the procedure. So what happens when you go for a termination at that gestation is um, they have to ensure that the baby won't be born alive um, because of the, you know, you've oh. decided to continue the pregnancy. So I signed the papers and I was scheduled to come in the next day for the procedure. And we went, I went in the next day and I remember it was the, I'm really good, I don't know why I remember these things, but it was the day that Djokovic won um, Wimbledon. Because I remember coming home from hospital and I was in physical pain and obviously emotional agony. And I remember lying on my sofa and watching Djokovic win Wimbledon. Anyway, so the procedure itself. So it's, you know, it's not nice. Trigger warning. Over the next 30 seconds or so, Laura describes the feticide procedure. So skip forward to about 19 minutes if you want to miss that. It's not nice, but it's just very similar to an amniocentesis, basically. So the, a big needle goes in, free belly. Um and um, I've still got the scar and they um, inject like a toxin straight into the baby's heart to stop their heartbeat so that happened and there were two obstetricians there had to be two obstetricians in there for kind of like legal reasons my husband was in there they turned the screen away so I went in and he was wiggling and kicking around and he was moving on the screen and they turned the screen away he went in and then just turned the screen off and they just said I'm really sorry and then they give you like a like a sort of typical induction process they give you the, the medic I don't know what it's called but they give you the medication you know to kind of sort of get labour started I was obviously very early so um before I went in for my actual induction it's going to be three days later they gave you I can't it was some sort of tablet to sort of start softening the cervix went home did barely slept cried and then three days later I went in for an induction like a standard induction procedure um and yeah he was born on the 6th of July so did you know before he was born that he was a he so we didn't, and then when we knew what was going to happen, um, we did. I did ask, I was like, can you just tell me the gender of my baby?" And um, the obstetrician, it wasn't, it wasn't the particular that appointment with the 
procedure but it's the one before when we had another scan I was like can you please just tell me and they said oh, we think it's a boy but we can't be sure because he'd like the position he was in um so we kind of thought he was a boy um so in those three days we kind of talked about potential names for him um the reason we chose Finley was because um the name Finley means small soldier um oh, that's and, beautiful yeah and so well Finley Eric so Finley means fair-haired warrior and um Eric is small soldier so um Finley Eric uh, Eric is a family name for both of us so yeah so we kind of talked about names there was this weird moment when we we had already talked about names before um when we were first pregnant we were kind of excited and I used to teach so I was around kids all the time so there's a certain names that you veto straight away because uh they're like you know either I mean I'm as same as you Laura I was one of about 50 Laura's in my school so I didn't want a really common name um and Finley was a name that was really popular the we have it the, the Scottish spelling, but the other spelling was really popular. So I remember in our first talks about names before you know anything was even wrong, um, we said about Finley, I was like, oh, but he'll be one of like hundreds of Finleys, which is not a problem, but being one of many Lauras. But then we decided that obviously as he was never going to be, his name was never going to be called in a register. So it really didn't matter, you know, if mm-hmm. he was going to be one of a hundred. Um, so yeah, we named him Finley. It was just not... Just not what you expect, is it, from your first, just, first oh, pregnancy? So brutal as well. It's yeah. the, the the whole way it happened. Like I just I was welling up, which well, I couldn't say anything. But that whole kind of oh, it, sorry. It's okay. I think the thing for me was that like I know a lot of people will say that they had no idea that babies could die, and it was this massive shock. That actually wasn't the case for me. Um, three years before I fell pregnant, my first friend to get pregnant, the first one, um, her son Oliver was still born at thirty three weeks. So I was 21 years old, my first friend had a baby and her baby died. Um, so I, and at the time I, uh, that was completely shocking to me. I had no idea that babies died. And when it happened to her, so I think when I was pregnant, I was aware that babies could die. Um, but I didn't think it was going to happen to me and not in an arrogant way, but I always remember when my friend Emma, who's, who's Oliver's mum, she came to see me. She was obviously an amazing support to me when Finley died. And I remember that the thing that she said to me was she said when Oliver died she was obviously it was devastating she said but she went but I kind of felt like I'd take him on for the team she said you know I felt like because it happened to me that nobody in my life none of my friends or family would ever ever have to go through this because I'd gone through it and um so she you know and again I, mean, I think we're, we must be one of the most unlucky friendship groups because when she said that to me I couldn't understand what she meant I was like how could you think that about your grief how could um but then in 2020 another friend from that same friendship group her son was diagnosed with a fatal a fatal condition. She had to have a termination, and I found myself saying those same words to her. Um, yeah. So did you like, find did you find that when that happened, you were able to kind of step up and and be there for each other in terms of what letting her know what to expect and Yeah, I think um, so. Her her diagnosis was, was quite a bit later, so her son was a bit bigger. So the kind of labour process was. I mean, labour's labour, isn't it? To be honest. Um, but yeah, we were. And I think because I didn't really talk about the name, you know, probably as you guys know, like I, um, when I got in the gang, I then kind of really came in the online gang in the Insta world and I was sort of talking about Finley, but I didn't ever really talk about the details behind his death um, because obviously now it's not the case, but then kind of 2015, 16, people weren't really talking about termination. It's stillbirth, miscarriage was all still very taboo, but there was a, a sort of growing community online, but, but, TFMR was like the taboo within the taboo. Like nobody spoke about it. Yeah. Um, and I felt even within that really safe community of um, the baby loss world, I didn't feel like I could talk about it. And so when 
Finley died, my, my friend Emma, I didn't feel like I could tell her the exact detail. Like I told her that he was ill and I told her that he died. Um, and actually she said she, you know, she figured it out, but I never actually said because I didn't know if I could. So by the time it came to our, our other friend whose son died um, just over a year ago, you know, by that point I had been much more open about the story of Pam Finley's death. I think the landscape's kind of shifted and people are talking more openly about ranges of losses. So I was able to talk to her about it and able to tell her as much or as little as she wanted to know. And, um, and I think for her, and I don't want to speak for her, but from what she said, hearing me talk about Finley and she, you know, she, she's like, I don't judge you at all for what you did. I see it as an, I mean, there's some people sort of talk about TFMR as like compassionate induction. And yeah. she said, like, I see how much you love your son and I see how much you, how much he's still such a part of your life. This was four years on. So she, that kind of gave her strength to know that she knew what she was doing was the right thing, but to kind of know that she was then going to be okay with that and she could live with that. Um, yeah. Which isn't is important, isn't it? Knowing people yeah. that have been through it and have survived it, because at the time you don't feel like you're going to survive it. No, you don't. And I remember like, you just don't, yeah, you don't know how you can, how you're ever going to live, how you're ever going to get through. And I think, you know, baby loss is always devastating and there's no hierarchy of grief. But for me, there was just, and I think everybody feels guilty when they when they experience a loss, no matter what the point or what the circumstances are. But I had a bit of paper that said it was my fault or that said it was on me, that said that I'd made that decision. I could pinpoint the exact, you know. Um, and interestingly, when I then became really poorly with my breakdown, um, my memory, I was quite psychotic. So my memory of this is hazy, but apparently I was saying to the hospital staff, like, do you know what I did? Do you know what I did? I'd killed my baby. Um, because in my head, in my kind of psychotic moment, all I could see, and I don't remember this, but all was that bit of paper. And it was like a it was like a sentence to me, like in you know, in trauma. Mm. Um that's not how I see it now, but that's kind of how it came up to, up for me as this, yeah, like a like a death sentence that I'd signed, like a warrant. Um, which of course is not what it is at all. But yeah, you know. I mean, obviously being quite vocal about your experience, have you come up against any criticism? Um no, actually I haven't. And I was really scared. So I I also wasn't really sure about ever sharing. And I remember yeah. just after my daughter was born in 2018, it was when Elle, Fed in the Empty Nest, launched her Mum's Voice series. And she, uh, I mean, we'd kind of been um, speaking for a couple of years ever since Teddy died. And so we you know, kind of spoke regularly online. And she messaged me and said, I'm going to do this blog series and I'd love you to, to share something. Um, and I was like, oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Um, you know, we kind of met at the Tommy's Awards and things. And so she was like, I'd love you to share a piece. I remember thinking, I was like, this is kind of now or never. Like, if I don't say now, I'll never say, because obviously Elle, you know, the platform that she has and her kind of voice in the baby loss community, I was like, this is a real opportunity. And if I, I can take it or I can't, but if I don't take it now, I'll probably never say. So I messaged her and was like, listen, I'm, this is the story. Um, what do you think? And she was like, share it. Like, she was like, Laura, I cannot tell you how many people message me with that story and they don't, and they feel so unseen. And yeah. so when I did that, it was terrifying. I was so scared. Um, but the response was overwhelmingly positive. Um, yeah. I do have quite a lot of people who follow me through Instagram who who have children with HLHS, children who are babies who maybe they didn't get a diagnosis until they were born. So obviously, you know, they were then confronted with that diagnosis at post-birth. So, you know, end the pregnancy wasn't an option. Or people who knew about the diagnosis and chose to continue um, and kind of go for the surgery options. And they were the people that I was most afraid of because I was thinking, you know, how might I be judged? Might, you know, and know the people that I've spoken to. Um, you try to be sort of like a voice for people. And of course, you can't be a voice for everybody because you've not been through the same experience as everybody else. But it is a worry, like, that you're not representing 
everyone as as well as they want to be represented but it, mm. it's, it's a tricky thing it's a it's a fine line because like I say we we haven't been through we've you know we've been through lots of different types of baby loss between us but we've not been through everything but we still sort of act as a bit of a voice for the for the mm. community so it's just trying to do our best by people yeah and I think you know I sometimes I have had um perhaps to my detriment is I'm quite open online and I think I don't have a particularly big following but it's quite a um engaged following and whenever I have I always not always but I often have things where I can ask me anything and people ask questions that are a little bit whoo, close to the line um I've had people outrightly ask me do you regret your decision um do you think it was the right thing um how do you feel about you know and they're they're very direct um and they can be quite painful but I just try and think that that comes from a place of curiosity perhaps from them it comes from you know maybe a lack of compassion because they maybe don't understand what they you know they don't not really I don't think it's set out to her and if they do I mean maybe it's sometimes a bit trolley but um yeah I've had it not really had anything negative I think People just have that. I said, I haven't bothered to be unkind or to be um, cruel about it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have any regrets about sharing um, the kind of the full story behind Finley's life and death. And I think you know, since now there are many more people adding to that, adding their voice online, um, and it's it's really great to see. Um, but yeah, it did take me. But it took me three years to be able to do it. I couldn't do it in the immediate aftermath. And you'd already had your other children by the time you yeah end up about it yeah it's the same for me I you, you, there's a lot of people who go through baby loss and don't have living children who feel like um a little bit of I don't know if is it resentment it's difficult yeah. for them to hear people who've got the happy ending yeah but I don't know about you but for me I just didn't have the the strength to be able to to do it before that and I wish I had have done um, and I think it's amazing that there are so many people now who are openly sharing their stories when they haven't got their happy ending yet. Um, mm. That's really brave, but I wasn't brave enough. M- maybe because there wasn't as uh, as much sort as much of a community to yeah. feel sort of held and um, supported while doing it. But I'm, I think it's really great that people can do it now. I don't, oh. I don't necessarily think it's it's bravery though. I think that that's what you perhaps see it as. But I think. Like if you're not in the right headspace, you're not in the right headspace. It's not. It, if you are, that's that's brilliant. As you say, those voices are fantastic for people that are looking for them. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a you weren't brave enough to do it while you were still trying. I would say that your headspace was not. You mm. were so occupied by the desire to, to get but, pregnant that you didn't have think, that space. Yeah, but I do think that the lack of other voices doing the same thing meant that I didn't feel well. I feel like I didn't feel brave enough. Like the, if there'd have been more people speaking about it, I might have said, oh, okay, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, yeah. But that's why it's great that there's such a good community now that's doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, obviously I don't have a magic credit of a crystal ball, but, um, you know, five years after my son died, I was in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> and um, I do wonder, obviously, I've done a lot of work around kind of the reasons I was there and, you know, it's an ongoing process. But I do think that maybe in 2015, it felt very, very lonely mm. um, in a way that I would hope it doesn't feel quite so lonely now. Obviously, the, the experience of losing a child, losing a pregnancy is isolating but there is a lot of people feeling that and I think that voice is getting louder and I feel really privileged to be 
have sort of been kind of bearing witness to that. I mean, I, you know, the, the kind of the big sort of cohort it, for me of people sharing their voices, people like Elle, people like Michelle, um, the Legacy of Leo, all the people I kind of, they, I was on return to leave with Leo when they were speaking out and sharing. And that felt like, I was like, oh my, how amazing, you know, these yeah. warrior women. Like I never, I didn't have that, but I felt like I still got, gained so much from them, even though I was kind of, in terms of my journey, not really what I like, but you know, I was a kind of, you know, I had my my rainbow, but still, I saw such strength and comfort from their words. Um, actually, you know, Jess and Nat from Legacy of Leo, they um, they came to see me when I was in hospital. They drove all the way to Norfolk, which is oh. which is no small feat, <laughs> given how far away it is. And they came and they put flowers on Finney's grave for me because I was obviously banged up. Um, and they came to see me in hospital, and um, that just shows what an incredibly like compassionate and like devoted and understanding community is that people who I've met, I've met them a handful of times in real life, yeah. but they made that drive and they did that because they knew they, they cared. And mm-hmm. um, that was just amazing. I mean, I remember Jess saying to me, she said, you know, you're paving the way, Laura, you're the first of many who were going to go batshit crazy after the baby dies. Uh, so do not, <laughs> do not worry about that. Um, but I think it just shows, yeah, how amazing that community is and how like powerful finding other voices and finding people and that's what you know this podcast online that's what's so great about it because you know years ago that wouldn't have been an option Mm. and tell us a bit about your your batshit crazy that's the end of part one join join in join tune (laughs) tune in next week for all the batshit crazy stuff Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And please, please, when you have a second, rate us, review us and share us. And let's get this taboo smashed. See you next week. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.